into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your host, Samson Kovach. You can get a hold of me um, if you just go, you know, samsonstick.com. The email is right there. You can, you know, hit the little button, email me. Uh, you can go to The Theology Pit on Facebook, and you can you know, send me a, a message there. Of course, you know, commenting on uh, these podcasts as they're as they're going out. You know, you got a 10-day window in there on the website, samsonstick.com. Or, you know, email me directly if you don't want to go to any of that stuff. Samson, that's S-A-M-S-O-N at samsonstick, S-A-M-S-O-N-S-T-I-C-K.com. Go ahead and give me an email and just let me know what you're thinking. We are continuing with our series on the Bible right now. And for the last couple weeks, I have been spending a lot of time, well, I, I guess all of the time, on um, you know the apocryphal works, or I shouldn't say apocrypha because that makes you think like Old Testament stuff, but the pseudepigraphal works, the New Testament apocrypha stuff, the um, Gnostic Gospels, the what's called the quote-unquote hidden writings. And I, I, I think we're pretty much done with that. I think from these last two weeks, you kind of get an idea, a flavor, and a feeling for, you know, what exactly is in there. So we're going to move on now, and we're going to talk about um, the canonization of the New Testament. Okay, we looked at kind of what those... So I wanted to do that just so you get this feeling of what else was out there at that time and what it kind of looked at. And now, having that mindset along with... um, you know, the, the hopefully you do know the New Testament. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to assume everybody listening has read the New Testament and um, understands the type of literature that it is, the different types of literature that it, it, the different books are. But, um, you know, please do, of, of course, please read the New Testament. And, you know, if you're so inclined, read the uh, Gnostic works also. I think that it's good because you can see that, uh, that contrast within them. But you get this feeling of you know what the the gnostic gospels are like and what the you know new testament writings are like and that we only have four gospels we don't have more and why and the canonization of scripture that we're going to talk about today is going to be the criteria of why they chose these four particular gospels and maybe even answer the question, why didn't they just make one gospel and you know, mix them all together and just tell one story? Wouldn't that be a lot easier and save paper? All right, so um, what we're going to be discussing here today, I find to be you know extremely fascinating and extremely important as a Christian to know you know, exactly why we have the books we do and you know, who chose them, who, who made it possible. Now, if you've been listening to the Theology Pit and you've been listening to the series, I've kind of been dropping hints and, you know, the reasons why those books are chosen and some books aren't. So let's just start off with some, you know, like basic facts of the New Testament that we have, you know, so far. Okay. Um, first off, um, the New Testament consists of 20, 27 
uh, books. Okay, some of them, you know, mo- most of them are letters that were written to um, churches at that time. Some were written to people at that time. One of them is um, apocalyptic um, in nature, and then you have four gospels, which are written in a historic narrative. Um, John is the Gospel of John is said to be written in like a traditional uh, Jewish biography. You would, you know, the way he's he's writing it. The Gospel of John has like bookends, okay, to it. So he's talking about, you know, in the beginning of his gospel, he even uses in the beginning. Um, but he's he's laying out that framework in the first chapter that Jesus is God, that he is Yahweh. And then at the end of it, he also has the proclamation that he's Yahweh. And these bookends are to say, I'm going to tell you what you're going to read, you're going to read it, and I'm going to tell you what you've read. In a way, it's, it's, it's kind of like that. Um, because in the beginning, he has um, the, uh, the word was with God and the word was God using the word logos. And we went over that in um, our, our understanding of um, justification, our, our salvation series in the theology pit. But just real quick for that, if in case you haven't listened to that, um, the word logos had a meaning at that time. It was not a Christian word. It's, I mean, well, you have to figure whenever the Gospels were written, there was no such thing as a Christian word or a Christian, um, you know, usage that was the norm. I would say, you know, that that we think of it today as. I mean, you know, we talk about baptism. You hear the word baptism and you think uh, Christian baptism, you jump right into it. But there's, you know, there was Jewish baptism uh, that that occurred and it still occurs. And so people would, you know, at the time, you know, kind of have both things in mind, you know, but whenever they're using the word logos, they are talking about uh, something that comes from Platonic thought, um, Stoic philosophy, and what it, this is is that the logos was a like a divine emanation that proceeded from God that had causal power to it that cr- was creative, okay? That could you know do things that trying to find the right words here for it, but John you know kind of grabbed onto that and said. Much in the same way that um, you know the, uh, uh, the the Ten Commandments and the the um, well not the Ten Commandments the um, the, the narrative of uh, Genesis with the first you know six days of creation and how each one of those was destroying a different um, god or concept of the. Um, uh, the the pharaohs and you know the whole Egyptian construct of the understanding of the cosmos. Okay, for you know they worship Ra, you know the the sun god, and in a way by saying that um, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he he said light, you know, and the light leaped into existence. So he the, he created the sun. So it's like saying, okay, you know what you Egyptians worship. Yeah, Yahweh created that. And in a way, John's kind of doing the same thing. He's pulling off of um, all of this type of, you know, I guess apologetics that, you know, was done in, in the Old Testament up till now. So he's taking this word from philosophy, from Stoic philosophy, from Platonic understanding, and he is saying that this word, this divine emanation, this is Jesus. Okay, this this thing that you 
claim, this thing that you that you say has this causal power that does this, yeah, that's Jesus. And not only is that Jesus, but this causal power, this logos, Jesus here, he is God. He's with God and he is God. It's a, you know, a, a at least a binatarian concept at this point, if, if you're not uh, seeing the, the Trinitarian uh, construct in it. But um, so that's the whole like kind of background of the logos. And so he's saying here that, you know, Jesus is God. And then at the end of his gospel, where he has um, uh, uh, Thomas putting his, you know, looking at the wounds, putting his finger in Jesus' side, he says, you know, because doubting Thomas, you know, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe unless I, unless I see. Um, And so he does. And, you know, he says to him, my Lord and my God, you know, and, the and some people have made this argument. Well, he's not really calling Jesus God because he's saying, "You are my Lord." You know, praise be to you and to my God up above. But um, the uh, Granville Sharp rule of within um, the Greek understanding, the the Greek language, is that whenever you have uh, "kai," uh, the word "and" um, with um, two subjectives and a definite article, that both of those subjectives are with the definite article, which gives it a proper uh, understanding, like a, like a pronoun understanding, a name understanding, a, a, a proper noun. So if, if he was saying, you know, uh, like, I guess it would be, um, ha, I don't have it in front of me, so I have to kind of do this by memory here. Uh, it would be ha kyrios, which would be the Lord or my Lord, um, the the Lord, and then Kai, and then Theos, it would be you know Ha Kyrios Kai Theos, um, or something to that to that effect. I would have to go you know grab my Greek New Testament to, to read it out exactly. But the the point being is that um, Granville Sharp, who uh, showed this, that when you go through the Scripture. Anytime you have this this sentence construct, this this construct here, that it's always referring both things are referring to the same person. When you have the definite article, subjective, chi, subjective, then they're both referring. It, it's the same person that's being referred to, or the same thing that's being referred to. And it's not just with um, with God and with you know Jesus being identified as God. Just in basic uh, understanding, it's just the way of speaking, the way of understanding. So John is using that to say he is Lord and he is God. So, you know, uh, king and deity in a way. All right. So this is, you know, the understanding that you want to have whenever you're reading through the New Testament, because you want to kind of get this feel of what exactly are they talking about? What direction are they going? Where are they going with this? And um, this was done, was written. You got to figure the the resurrection of Christ was about 33 AD okay that's the traditional uh, date that's given 33 AD I, I don't contest that because it really doesn't doesn't bother me one way or another if it was a year earlier or a year later or whatever but at 33 AD seems to be the popular consensus so I'm just gonna stick with that um, what was happening is that when you read through the book of Acts you have many many years of people, going around and they are spreading the gospel. And it's like, why? Why weren't they just writing stuff down? Why weren't they just, you know, uh, making these books then? Why weren't they writing things immediately? And some people say that they were. Um, There's 
traditional history when it comes to um, rabbinic teachers that you would have somebody that would write down some of the stuff they said. Now, we read through the New Testament, and you read something like the Sermon on the Mount, and you're like, oh, okay, well, how did they remember that when Jesus just gave one sermon? Well, it's not like you know sermons today where it's, it's, it's once. They would say it over and over and over again. It would be a like a common a, a common preaching theme. Like as as a musician, um, whenever I do a performance or I'm with a group and we have a performance, we will practice the performance. Um, not only the songs, but the entire performance itself over and over and over again. It's not like we just do it one time. And if we're performing, you know, over many nights, it's going to be that exact same thing over and over and over. If you came to each show, you would see the same performance. You would see the same, like, um, uh, song structures. You would see the same, um, you know, song set lists. You would see if, if there was any, um, you know, uh, drama, theatrics, lighting, anything like that, it would all be the same. It would be the exact same thing. And if you were around that long enough, you would be able to say, hey, you know what? This is, I I know what's going to happen. You'd be able to tell other people. Now, if you and a bunch of other people were all around that too, you could kind of, you know, collectively put your heads together and come up with what exactly was done. What did we witness? What was, what was said? What, you know, um, uh, what songs were performed? What you know that sort of thing. So you have the uh, the disciples of Christ. Plus, there were other people that were following also, and he's speaking to large crowds. This wasn't done in secret. So they say that there may have been somebody that was writing down some of the stuff that he said. Like they, they said, okay, you know what? I want to preserve some of this stuff, and I'm I'm going to write it down. And that they think that there was a collection of these just sayings, these just, these writings that were just, you know, traditionally, you know, uh, written down and, um, you know, archived somewhere, but, you know, that, that were able, that were available, that were able to be, uh, tapped into. And this has been called Q and I can't remember the exact reason why it was called Q. I think it comes from a German word for it, but basically it's like if you went through the Synoptic Gospels, which were, which are uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you looked at all of the uh, phrases and stories that were exactly the same, you could actually make up this mythical um, Q that would be saying, okay, this is the pool where everything was taken from. Now, is it possible that this, that that's true? Maybe, maybe, you know, I'm not, not saying that it's not, not saying that it is saying that if it was, boy, it'd be very, very helpful. And I would certainly find it, um, you know, more comforting. I think it would be a better, uh, argument for the authenticity of what we have as being Jesus' words, you know, something that could be, you know, shown as as an example. Um, but even if it's not, I think that what we have is really good. I mean, you know, I don't I don't want to just say good enough. I want to say extremely good. And I've I've proved that in other theology pits in this uh in the series, in the earlier ones of uh, how far back we go, including um the fact that we preserved changes that, you know, Matthew made to Mark, you know, within within his gospel. And how you know, even even things that made 
Christians uncomfortable, like, you know, Jesus being called Yahweh and, and, you know, them saying that, you know, he is the one who brought Israel out of Egypt and the amount of variance that you have from that because people were uncomfortable with it. But we still today, you know, in our uh, translations and our better translations have that. And I, th- I think it's in the book of Jude. I, I remember us going over. And where it's, he, they're just coming right out and saying it. You know, Paul coming out and saying that Jesus is Yahweh in, uh, in, in the book of Romans, whenever he uh, quotes um, the prophet Joel, and he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I think it's in Joel 2.32, and it's in Romans, I want to say 8. Um, but And he's talking about Jesus, and he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and speaking of Jesus. So, calling him Yahweh directly. So, you could see that if you have these things that are making people uncomfortable, we're still preserving it, which you know better shows the authenticity of it. Now, as the apostles are getting older... You know, they are, they're waiting for the return of Christ. They are waiting for it to be imminent. And, you know, of course, they're dying off. They're, you know, they're being martyred. Um, they're being persecuted. Uh, there's a, a lot of stuff going on. Um, they decide to start writing this down, the, these things down. Now, Mark is the first one, and Mark was not a disciple. He was a disciple of Peter. He was writing under Peter's authority. So his structure is more of the way Peter would structure things. Now it's said that Mark was, you know, loosely writing off of um, Peter's uh, sermon, let's say sermon, his speech at Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts. But you have things where we can date earlier also, like just because um, Mark is the first gospel doesn't mean that he was the earliest writing. And actually within writings earlier than the ones that we have, you can um, see that there were things that were much earlier than that. Um, you know, for example, in first uh, Corinthians 15, whenever Paul's writing in, in this chapter, what's interesting is that he has a section in here. He says, for I passed on to you as a first importance, what I also received. And then the wording, it stops being Pauline. All right. It's, it stops being the way he speaks, the way he writes, the way he talks. And it sounds more like a, like a liturgical mantra. Okay, like a um, like a, a, a doxology in a way. Okay, it's it, he says um, that this is what you know he he, he passed on. Okay, that was um, you know that was that he received. Also, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to uh, Cephas. Then to the twelve, Cephas is another name for uh, Peter. Um, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, though one born at the wrong time, he appeared to me also. So you can see that he's like you know, putting that in there. But you have that chunk in there that, you know, is very similar to what is said in a lot of liturgical churches today. When you look at the call and response um, of liturgical worship, and uh, you look at the Nicene Creed, or you know the Apostles' Creed, or Nice, 
Nicene, Constantinople, and Creed, depending on how you want to look at that. But, you know, it, it has that structure in it. And everything, all the Gospels seem to have that same you know, structure in it, that same type of thing taken from, you know, you take this and then you take what Peter said at, um, at Pentecost in, in Acts two, um, you know, he, you know, he, he puts a lot of, uh, old Testament scripture in there and everything, but, you know, he addresses and, um, them because they're saying like, you know, these people are drunk and all this stuff, but he's reminding them of what was said, you know, from, uh, Joel that, um, that uh, and in the last days it will be uh, it will be God says that I will pour out my spirit on all people because if if you're not sure of what's going on in Acts here all the um, the men in the upper room discourse they're all speaking in tongues and um, you know the people that are there for the feast of Pentecost at at that time people came Jews came from all over the world okay to Jerusalem for this feast of Pentecost and they're listening to these guys speaking in tongues and it's not like the unintelligible gibberish that you might hear if you think of like modern day you know speaking in tongues uh it is and and I I'm, I know people may I may get charismatics that are angry at me for saying that you know and they say no no it's an angel angelic language and like also that's not what's going on here what's going on here is the people are hearing the disciples speak the apostles speak they're speaking in tongues but it's not just random gibberish because they say to them you know these men um, you know they're. They're speaking in tongues. Let me just find it exactly. So, um, because it says that, you know, they were all filled with the Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Okay. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation uh, under heaven residing in Jerusalem. Uh, when this sound occurred, this is um, chapter 2, verse 6 of Acts. When this sound occurred, the crowd gathered and was in confusion because each one heard them speaking in his own language. These were Jews from all over the world, which means Hebrew was not their native language. Um, Arabic may not have been their main, their native language. I mean, you may have Jews coming from, you know, other other parts of the world where, you know, maybe, um, I don't know, maybe they're coming from Rome and Latin was it or, or whatever, you know. I mean, but what the important thing here is that this isn't just unintelligible gibberish, but each one of them is, he is hearing their own language being spoken clearly from them. And it says in verse 7, they're completely baffled. They say, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? All right. And then it has the um, uh, Parthenians, Medes, uh, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and province of Asia. Um, then it continues on, you know, in other parts, like where, where everybody's from. And... Yeah, and they're all speaking, you know, in verse verse 11 here, we hear them speaking in our own languages about the great deeds that God has done. So they weren't just speaking just to speak and they're saying, hey, we're hearing language. They're proclaiming the gospel. Okay, and they're proclaiming what Peter is about to start preaching about. And, you know, he's saying that, look, um, you have men of Israel, listen to these words. Um, this is verse 22 of two, Peter speaking here. Jesus the Nazarene, a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders, and miraculous signs. Okay, so, 
that is going to be a big part of the gospels. You're going to have you know, Jesus doing these things um, because God has attested him uh, to do these things. That performed miraculous signs um, that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So he's not saying, hey, I'm not exactly speaking to everybody like you guys weren't here and didn't know stuff. There's a lot of you that did see these things. Uh, there was a group of people, uh, I believe it was, I, I'm going to have to relook this up for you, um, and, and I probably should do it now, but I'm just going to do this off the top of my head because I just want this to be like a passing thought. The Ebionites, who they believed Jesus to be a prophet, but they f- believed him to be just a mere man and was not a, it was not God incarnate. Okay. But he was just a great prophet. And I think that they, oh, they, they died out. Uh, why do I want to say 600 years ago? But I know it's probably not right. Um, but these were, uh, people who were said to be the, um, disciples of John the Baptist that then went and, uh, and followed, but didn't believe that, you know, Jesus was divine, but that he was a prophet. So there were a lot of people that were devout Jews that, uh, followed Jesus, that listened to Jesus, but, you know, they, they didn't believe him to be uh, God. So, you know, then Peter goes on to say, this man who was handed over uh, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. Again, you can see the, you know, the structure of the gospel in here, the Gospels that were written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can see that in here. It says, but God raised him up, um, having released him from pain of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. And again, this is what all of the Gospels have in common. They have the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is the structure. This is what the Gospel is. The good news is that, you know, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that is, you know, Paul's argument for that. And that is like the, you know, the the hinge point of Christianity, okay? Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Get rid of the Bible, get rid of all these books, get rid of all the churches, all the creeds, all the everything. It doesn't matter. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and ultimately his death, burial, and resurrection that reconciles us uh, to God. So he, you know, he, he then goes on just to, um, you know, talk about the resurrection and the difference between uh, him and David. He's he's you know identifying him with David to show the the kingly quality. But whenever you're looking at you know these other gospels, these these Gnostic gospels, they don't follow the same pattern. Okay, and because they don't follow the same pattern, it makes you wonder where exactly they came from because all of the apostles followed this pattern. All the disciples of the apostles followed this pattern. And so their writings, when they wrote about the gospel and they did that, would follow this pattern. If you were careful in the way that you were going to um, write a pseudepigrapha work, you would follow this account. The gospel of Peter that we didn't go over, it's very short. It's um, some versions of it are only 14 verses. Some versions of it are like 30 verses, but it follows this account. Okay. And it's, I think it's also called the, it might be the apocalypse of Peter also. I'd have to double check on that because sometimes when you get into um, a lot of these uh, Gnostic writings and pseudepigrapha writings, um, apocryphal works, they may have different names 
that were given to them over the years. Um, for example, the shepherd of Hermes is also called the, uh, the pastor of Hermes. Um, so, you know, it, you kind of have to watch yourself with that, but, um, but that's like the closest one that you really have. That's really like, you know, kind of, you know, following in that say to say that it is comparable to another gospel because the gospel of pseudo Matthew doesn't do that as we saw. Um, so that is kind of my point of you have all of this oral tradition that's very, very good. Okay. When you're not being distracted by TV and podcasts and you know everything else, and this is your culture, um, oral memorization is very palatable. It's very understandable and it's very reasonable. And the, it's people being able to remember and recall stuff is very good because of the way they're passing it on, because of the collective understanding of it. If somebody's saying something wrong, you'd have a large group of people that would be able to correct them and say, no, that's, that's not right. And here's why. You'd also have people that would be in um, uh, authority that would be closer. And, you know, you'd have like this whole chain thing. Those who were, you know, well, you know, are you sure you said this? I don't know. Let me go ask John. He's still alive. Okay. Well, you know, John's dead. Well, let me ask, you know, St. Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp. You know, they are, um, uh, uh, Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna, which is one of the seven churches that John wrote to in the book of Revelation. And St. Ignatius of Antioch was the Bishop of Antioch. And they wrote back and forth to each other. So it's like, what did God, what did John mean by this? Well, let's go ask, uh, Polycarp or Ignatius. You know, we can, we have these, these people available to us. It's not like everything was done in a vacuum and it's like, oh, where did this come from? Everybody knew. Everybody was able to see all that stuff. So, you know, Paul's writing his letters, you know, and he's writing to, to people and he's quoting the Old Testament and, you know, he's putting stuff together for people to understand in, in what exactly it meant that Christ died for us, which was the salvation series in the theology pit. But then, um, you know, Mark comes along, you know, writes his account. Luke is writing as a historical detective for Theophilus. And he wrote Luke and Acts and he's gone going around like interviewing people and talking and using Mark as a, a template. Matthew is also writing. It seems independent of Luke, but dependent of Mark. And, um, you know, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul and Matthew was a disciple also. And so we're going to, I'm going to, after the break here, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All right, so we have, you know, these these books being written, these letters being written and these letters are being written and these books are being written at the time people were alive that were witnesses to the events. Okay. This wasn't written after the fact. And we know that because when you read through your new Testament, you see them referring to the writings, the works of other people. It's not, they didn't have one book. There were scrolls going around, possibly you know made into a codex, but doubtful, uh, more than likely all of these were scrolls. 
And so you had all these scrolls going around. The apostles are reading the works of Paul, of what he's doing. Paul would send out a letter. They would they would read it. They would, you know, make a comment on it. I mean, you you find that in different uh, different places, and. So it, while all this stuff is being written, it's it's kind of being cross-checked in a way by the church community as a whole, leaders and lay people, okay? It's not like the apostles had a monopoly on this and were just saying that, you know, what can go out and what can't, and they sat there in a group and, and wrote stuff together. No, they're, they're all over the world. They're doing their missionary works. They're all over the place. You read the book of Acts and you see, you know, how long everything was, was going on and if you've ever read the book of Acts and kind of wondered why the flow is the way that it is, the book of Acts is following the gospel. And so that's why it kind of, it starts with Peter, you know, as who you would think would be the protagonist of the, of the book. And then it moves to Paul and it's like, why was there kind of this shift? Well, because Peter, you know, was taking the gospel to the Jews where Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and he was going to take it to the whole world, which was known as Rome because that was the center of the world. So when you're reading it, understand that you're following the travel of the gospel message. Okay. You're not following an individual person. It's like when you read, you know, um, first and second Chronicles and first and second Kings, and you're, you're looking at that going, it's kind of telling the same story, you know, like first and second Samuel, like all the, it's telling the same story, but it's from a different perspective because Chronicles is written from the perspective of the temple. Okay. Where, you know, the other ones, the, um, Kings are written from, you know, the, the different understandings of the kingdoms and, and, you know, those sort of things. So it's, you have to understand the, the intent and who the, you know, the, what the main section of it is. And when you're reading the book of Acts, um, that's what you need to understand is that you're following the gospel message to all of, you know, everywhere in the earth, the center, you know, center of humanity in a sense, you know, center of the center of the world, the whole, it's going out to the whole world and Rome as that central trading place is the whole world that it's going out to. But while you have this being done, okay, people are, you know, you're kind of asking, okay, what does it mean that it, you know, why, why was it accepted as the word of God? Why was it accepted as having this authority and why not the other ones? Well, the first thing, the first one, and when we talked about this before a little bit, I've, t- I've touched on is that, um, the, the new Testament, the, the one thing that people said, uh, the criteria that had to meet was that it had to be written by an apostle or by somebody with the authority of an apostle or the associate of it. It has to be written, you know, under their instruction, okay? And, you know, it has to be on par with that of what we already know Scripture to be, okay? So, that would be like kind of one, you know, big uh, understanding of it. Um, Also, um, it, it can't contradict Scripture. Now, a lot of people have a hard time understanding, I just want to talk about this real quick, of what a contradiction is. A contradiction is not um, when, for example, um, the women arrived at the tomb of Jesus and one gospel says that there was one angel and the other gospel says that there were two angels. Okay, that is not a contradiction. All right, that's a discrepancy within the two manuscripts, but it is not a contradiction. And the fact that that discrepancy is left in there and has not been changed in, in roughly 2,000 years here, that or 1,900 years, however you want to count it, that shows that 
Christians were very good at keeping it authentic and not, you know, trying to harmonize uh, the gospels and and change things and and make them match because then people would scream collusion. You know, you know, if that happened, it's, you know, the people who are anti-Christian would always find a reason to hate it. Either it was collusion and it was controlled and it was changed or it's complete contradiction. Now, a contradiction would be something like you find in um, the gospel of let's say pseudo Matthew, for example, or the, or the infancy narrative of, um, of, of Christ, which is, um, the gospel, a bigger, you know, version of the gospel of Thomas, in my opinion. And then you have the gospel of Thomas itself. Okay. This is what a contradiction sounds like. Gospel of Thomas, um, the infancy narrative, the, the older one, um, chapter 11, it says that um, when Jesus reached the age of eight years old, uh, Joseph was a master builder, okay? The infancy narrative, it says, um, uh, let's see, in uh, chapter, I'm trying to find the chapter number, well, it might just be verse numbers here, verse 38, or we'll just say chapter 38 here, or almost like paragraph 38. It says, um, nor was it necessary for him to make anything with his own hand, for Joseph was not very skillful in carpentry. So which was it? Was he a master carpenter or was he a really bad one? Okay, that's a contradiction in saying he was great, he was not great. Those two things can harm. That's what a contradiction looks like. Not, you know, Joseph made a chair. Joseph made two chairs. Oh, that's a contradiction. No, he made a chair. That's the point. Okay. Was there two angels or one angel? Well, the the obvious answer is not that there were no angels. At least there was at least one. And if that bothers you that much, you know, then my advice to you would be to, you know, ignore one and just believe the other. Okay, ignore that gospel altogether and just believe the other. Because if you believe one gospel, you're obligated. You know, this is historical narrative. This is what happened. Okay, now the attesting that we have. Now we're not even up to thirty years from the resurrection of Christ to what we've been talking about now. Okay, with with all of these writings and with what's going on. Okay, Paul was writing, started writing in you know the late forties. Okay, um, the 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 um, creed that we read earlier from First Corinthians, Doctor Gary Habermas has traced that back to like eighteen months. You know, after the resurrection itself, that that started like the wording and that started coming about and people saying that. Now you have to remember, Christ also. Uh, uh, instigated and, and, and set down the, the Eucharist, which people today celebrate every single day. And some people did celebrate it every single day. And this was done every time they gathered. Okay. So they were remembering the body and blood of Christ. They're remembering the death, burial and resurrection. This is a very central thing. This is something that is happening constantly in the lives of Christians. This is not something that they would just be like, Oh yeah. Hey, that's what happened. I remember that. Yeah. Death, burial and resurrection. Oh yeah, boy. I hadn't thought of that. And years. It's been like 10 years since I thought that. No such thing. Because of the um, the religious rituals, the practices, the, the liturgy that was enacted. I know some people are very down on that, but it is extremely important for passing on information. And, um, this is, and it's something that I think that we should, you know, hold to as, as believers, but this is going on 
every day or at least every week, if you want to say they all get together on the Lord's Day. This is attested to in um, non-Christian histories also. And uh, maybe later on we'll, we'll go through some of those where... Um, you know, we had people that were tortured to find out what exactly, you know, they were doing and, you know, their confession uh, of the body and blood of Christ and and that and people just saying, yeah, we, you know, we tortured them to death to make sure that they weren't lying. And, you know, here, here it was just this harmless substance that they think is the body and blood of Christ. They even called, um, uh, you know, atheists because they rejected all the other gods and would only worship Christ. Um, they were considered cannibals because they claimed that they were eating flesh and drinking blood, like actually doing it, not metaphorically, but they were, people said they, 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 they claim that they eat flesh and that they drink blood and they were accused of incest because they referred to all each other as brother and sister because they were brothers and sisters in the Lord and they were marrying each other and having kids. And they said, Oh, they're just some in crazy, atheistic, incestuous, cannibalistic cult. Okay, I mean, that would be the propaganda that would be slammed against them during this time period. Okay, they were called Christians. That was pejorative because they would go around saying things and yeah, that Jesus said all the time. And people knew because they Jesus said it all the time. And people knew all of these different sayings, where they came from and everything. They called them Christians, which was derogatory. It was like saying, oh, you just think you're like a, a Christ, a little Christ. You just think that you're just like, you, you sound just like him. Oh you were Christian. Okay. Christian, you know, and it was, it was seen as a put down, you know, much like the word Protestant, you know, Protestant means protester. And, you know, it's, that's a pejorative label that was given to, uh, reformers, uh, Martin Luther, especially because he was protesting the Catholic church when, you know, he was, uh, more or less protesting what the church was doing, not the church itself, which, you know, I mean, that's, I got into that like a little bit in um, uh, Salvation Series with Martin Luther, but, uh, you know, that's that's always something that, you know, is fun to revisit. Anyways, so in these writings now that's that's going on, so let's, let's skip ahead from the late 40s, and let's stay between the late 40s here, um, which is 15 years after uh, the resurrection of Christ, okay? So you have 15 years of people constantly doing things. Okay. Um, you have, you know, Galatians is, is, has been written. Um, you know, Peter gets smacked down in that one. Um, you know, Paul gives us like these timelines. You can, you can put the timelines together from the book of acts on when certain places were visited and when the letters were written. Um, certain things that happened with all the, uh, um, uh, Christians, all the Jews being uh, kicked out of Rome for you know causing problems and like all that stuff. I mean, it's all stuff that's um, recorded in books like you know is the New Testament reliable by uh, Paul Barnett. Um, you can look at a lot of that stuff, but let's stay within the stuff that was written, the Christian literature at the time, which is the New Testament. So, for example, um, you know here's here's some scripture verses that. Um, you know, back up uh, a lot of the uh, authority of the apostles. Second Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. So as you can see, there were two different um, 
things going on there because you had the liturgical additions, you had the preaching, you had the teaching that was happening, but then letters started being written and sent out. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Okay? Paul is seeing that that is what he is writing, is he is writing scripture. Uh, Galatians 1.8 is a very famous one. Um, but if, if we or any or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say it again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And Galatians is one of the earliest ones. So what's he talking about there? The one that's preached is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That is what is being proclaimed. Second or First Thessalonians two thirteen. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is—the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Okay, so this is the apostles saying that what we are saying. This is the word of God. What you're hearing from it now, the New Testament. The, the the apostles accepting the other apostles. That's found in the New Testament as well. Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And regard to the uh, and regard the practice of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which uh, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also to the rest of Scripture, to their own destruction. Paul is saying here, or Peter is saying here, that what Paul is writing, it may be difficult to understand. It may be difficult to grasp because Paul is, I mean, being the education that Paul had, you know, the he he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, you know, he he goes through his credentials. He was um, born and raised in Tarsus, a very affluent community. He was very well educated. He knew Hebrew real well. You know, he knew his. Old Testament real well. He knew his liturgies real well. He knew everything. He was able, while he's putting all this together, showing Jesus is Yahweh. This is what's happening. This is what is meant by this. This is what's going on, that he is our Paschal Lamb. That, you know, all this stuff that Paul's like putting out there, that, you know, calling on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. He is Yahweh. So Peter is reading that. And Peter's saying, man, this is hard. This is hard stuff. And even, you know, him in Galatians slamming Peter, saying, hey, you should eat with the Gentiles. You should ignore the dietary laws because, you know, we're, we're free from that. Christ has fulfilled the law. And, you know, Peter is just saying, this is, this is hard to understand. It's really hard to understand. But even though I'm saying it's hard to understand and I don't get it all, I don't understand. I'm Peter. I'm who the Roman Catholics consider to be the first pope. I don't understand what Paul is saying, but, but you need to accept it because those who are not taught and those who are unstable, they twist and distort what Paul says, just like they do to the rest of scripture. Because even though he doesn't fully understand, he still recognizes that what Paul is writing is scripture. Peter says, 
that Paul's writing is scripture. Okay, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18, For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You shall not muzzle an ox while he is threshing is from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's Luke 10.7. So Luke was already written by the time... Paul wrote 1 Timothy 5.18. Paul is quoting Luke's work and equating it with Scripture. Remember the what we were talking about? Uh, the subjective, chi-subjective in there? Here's two phrases right here. You know, and he's saying, okay, Scripture says, the Scripture says, okay, definite article in there. The Scripture says, not Deuteronomy 25.4, and it says Luke 10.7. That is scripture to Paul. So, Peter, who Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, you have the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you loose shall be loosed, whatever you bind shall be bound, go feed my sheep, more or less you're the one in charge, is saying, Paul is writing scripture. Paul is saying, Luke is writing scripture. Paul wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, okay? the Pauline corpus, the body of, of Paul's works. Um, so you have that Luke is then being called to scripture by Paul. So you have Luke and Acts. Okay. Peter, they accept his writings also as scripture. So you have, you know, first and second Peter there. Mark was written under Peter's authority. So you have Mark. John is a beloved disciple. No one disputes, you know, John's gospel and so John is seen also as you know the uh, as, as as scripture as well. Right now, this is the bulk of the New Testament. This is the majority of the New Testament that we have just found in two verses in the New Testament, attesting to itself. You don't find anything like that in the Gnostic Gospels. You don't find that in any of the other pseudepigraphal works. Nothing like that. Because of the time period that this that the New Testament was written in, the New Testament that we have, that is what gives it its authenticity. Now, was everything that they written scripture? Well, no. I mean, you know, if they wrote a letter to, to somebody, you know, saying, hey, on your way back here, you know, grab some like milk and eggs and stuff or what, you know, whatever. No, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't mean that everything that they wrote was scripture, but when they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is considered scripture. Sometimes they knew, sometimes they didn't. So they are not the end-all be-all of what is considered scripture. If that's all we had, we'd say, okay, maybe that's that's all right and stuff, but um, you would need more than that, more than just them writing to each other and then them telling other people, hey, this is scripture, okay? Because other people would read it. The Bereans didn't believe Paul. In the book of Acts, he would go there and the Bereans, he would talk to them and the Bereans would say, you know what? No, we don't believe you. We're going to go search the scriptures ourselves, the Old Testament, to find out if what you're saying is true. And he said that they were more noble because of them doing that, because of them not believing him, but actually going back and doing it. So not everybody held to what the apostle said as authoritative. 
They held the word of God above what the apostles were saying. And if it contradicted it, they would reject it. And that is from the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy says that if someone came comes and claims to be a prophet or someone speaking for God, then they have to do something. They have to do a miracle, a sign in the, in the heavens, or they have to perform a miracle or whatever. And then they speak and what they say has to be orthodox and it has to be biblical. It has to be proper. If it's unorthodox, if it goes against the word of God, you are to reject them. It doesn't matter. They can do all the parlor tricks in the world or all the miracles in the world or fool you in any way. But if what they're saying does not add up to what the rest of scripture says, you are to ignore them. You are to throw them out. Okay. Don't even listen to them. So the Bereans gave us that example. You know, Peter's reading that stuff and saying, uh, you know, Paul's tough to understand, but I know that that is scripture. That's that's what it sounds like. So the church fathers who are the disciples of the disciples, this thing is like second generation Christians that like, you know, came about. Okay. And they are, you know, reading what the the writers of the New Testament are writing. Okay. The apostles. And they quote them in their own writings. It's not like writing stopped after the New Testament. There's there's tons of writings out there. Like like I said, I mean, I have a 38 volume collection of the early church fathers writings. 38, I mean, it's small type, thick books. Okay. And, and for the first like 500 years of, of church history, constant writing, constant, you know, uh, commentaries are going on. They're talking about things. They're talking about the community. They're talking about what's happening. They quote these New Testament works as scripture, okay? They draw a clear distinction between their writings and scripture. And this is stuff that some of their writings were contemporary writings at the time the New Testament was being written, okay? You have like, you know, the works of like you know, First Clement, um, possibly Shepherd of Hermes, um, which, you know, was a contender uh, for it that we never even talk about. And you never hear that from anybody. Well, I mean, one of the few books that was actually, um, you know, a, a contender for the New Testament, the Shepherd of Hermes, you never hear. You hear this, you know, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Jude, uh, you know, Gospel of Mary, and, and all this stuff. And, and you know, you're like, but what about the ones, I mean, obviously someone has done no historical research into this whatsoever. They're just counting that nobody else knows this history as well. And they can just kind of throw that out there and people believe it and talk about it as though, oh yes, this was a contender when, you know, even though we read through it and it was hundreds of years later, polluted with Gnostic thought that didn't exist at, you know, this, this time in the, the first century that, um, you know, somehow in their minds, that's a contender and these other ones aren't, it's, it's just such a weird understanding. Now, Marcion was a, he lived around like 140 AD, okay? He's a Gnostic heretic, and he came up with his own canon, which excluded the entire Old Testament and included only Luke, except for chapters 1 and 2, and the Pauline epistles, excluding the pastoral epistles. And the reason for this was because of the Gnostic understanding, and Gnosticism most basically is that everything that is spiritual is good and everything physical is bad. So any type of thing that would have any type of physical physicality like um, the first two chapters of Luke with the um, the uh, virgin birth narrative no that's physical well, you don't want that that's that's physical that's evil uh, well you know and they would say that, that that's evil the um, you know Christ uh, growing up as a kid like the temples of no 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 anything that changes 
also is not acceptable because you have this idea of there being like one pure God and then all these emanations coming from God. And that as the emanations get further and further away, then they move into the physical and you get this evil demiurge that created the, the earth. And it was the second, um, uh, emanation of God that was Jesus that would, you know, then go and, and redeem. I mean, it's like this whole, it's, it's, it's a whole system. Okay. But Marcion, you know, he had this canon that he wrote up like, you know, 140. That's not very far away. Uh, Irenaeus of uh, Leon, France, he was the disciple of Polycarp, who was the disciple of John the Apostle, who was a disciple of Christ, came out against him and said, no, there's only four Gospels. There's always been four Gospels, not just not just Luke, not just one. Um, I kind of teased a little bit in the beginning saying, you know, why didn't they just kind of put them all together? I mean, here you have these four. Wouldn't it just be easy to have a single one? Somebody tried to do that. It's called the Diatessaron. Okay. And this was done about like 160, 175 uh, AD. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that was 140 AD also. I think I might have said BC. Pardon me for that with, with Marcion. Marcion 140 AD. Uh, Diatessaron, you know, 160, 175, like around there, you know, late um, second century. So, um, this was done, uh, by, uh, Tatian and he was, you know, an, an, an apologist and he just wanted to you know, make it into a single thing and just make it very coherent and very easy, but it was rejected by the church community because, um, you know, they wanted what the, apostles themselves had had written and they wanted to you know have that that authority there of you no know, this is what John wrote and this is what he says this is what Luke wrote and this is what he says the diatessaron nobody knew of nobody accepted nobody you know um uh, thought that that was a good idea to harmonize stuff they never did before you know so why would they do it now and we want this type of authority, okay? Um, Origen, uh, we talked about him before. He, in the, let's, let's just say, early 3rd century, he wrote commentaries on most of the books of the New Testament. Um, the Mor- Moratorian canon in like 170 attests to all the books in the New Testament except for Hebrews, James, and First and Second Peter. So, you move out of this time of when it was written to this time of when it's being recognized and the church recognizing it. So that's like the second part. Okay. Number one, you know, it it had to be written by an apostle. It had to be seen as authoritative. The apostle had to see that they had some kind of authority. It had to be attested to not only by the apostles themselves reading each other's works over time and saying, yes, this is scripture and this is on par with the Old Testament, but the church as a whole had to come together while they're reading this stuff and what they're using in their churches and what they're seeing as scriptures and what is edifying to them and what's being used. And you have this recognition period that's going on up until the beginning of the third century, because as we talked about before, the Diocletian persecutions that came in were really, really bad. And they were, you know, rounding up Bibles, rounding up New Testament books, and they were burning them. And, you know, that's where the word traitores came from, the traitors who, which meant to turn over papers. Um, this is why you had the, the different groups and the splits saying, we don't want these people that turned over papers in our, our group anymore and, and we do so if you were going to die for a book you were going to be very sure on whether or not 
it was actually the word of God. And we have much more to say on this, and we'll get to that in the next pit. I thank you very much for listening to The Theology Pit. Please visit us on um, Facebook at The Theology Pit. Uh, or check us out, samsonstick.com. Um, you could get all these archives in um, you know, our section in uh, uh, theology there. Um, email me, samson at samsonstick.com. Visit us at samsonstick.com. And now it is most definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you.